Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, or if you're new, or, or visiting, or you're joining online, my name is Jeff Francian, and my family and I are members here at All Saints, and I'm also a pastoral intern here. Uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series, uh, which is about how we use our bodies, and I think it's an incredibly important uh, topic in general. We've talked about how we use our bodies in worship. We've talked about how we use our bodies in work. We talked about what we put into our bodies or what we don't put into our bodies as we eat or as we fast. And this week, we're going to be looking at the subject of the death and the resurrection of our bodies. This past year, I think death has probably been more present to our minds and our hearts maybe than ever before. We're constantly hearing about death And we've been faced with the reality of death in so many various ways. It's almost like the world that we live in has become foreign to us in a sense. And we find ourselves navigating these new circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I think one of the biggest problems that we face is that we have all these voices coming into our ears about death and how to respond to death and how to think about death. And yet I don't know how much those voices are balanced by the words that God has to offer us that tell us about death. As you can see, my sermon text is simple, and yet it's profound. Because while death often seems to be presented to us as only something to be fleed, something to be feared, God says something very different about our death, especially the death of his people. I could have chosen a number of verses to make this point, but I chose this one precisely because the way that it is so foreign to the way that we think about death. The words from our psalmist today, again, are simple and yet profound. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So today we'll be looking at death and all of its complexity and all of its forms. We're going to jump to a couple different passages. We'll spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 6. And I think that what we'll find out is just like every other topic that we could consider, and oftentimes topics that are dark or shrouded in confusion or fear, when we bring them into the light of God's word and when they're illumined by God's word, not only do we not find bad news, We just keep finding more and more good news. And so without minimizing the catastrophic nature of death, I want to tap into the ethos that Paul has that allows him to sing in victory over death at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he not only welcomes it, but he embraces it, almost as our Lord Jesus did. But I'm aware that the subject of death can be difficult, can be confusing, along with the subject of eternity. So let's pray and ask God to help us here this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you've brought us again here this morning to be gathered as your people, to be made new after the image of Christ, to hear the good news of the gospel. And Lord, as we consider the subject of death, a subject that um, is not always easy to confront, We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill our hearts, that he would lead us and guide us into truth and into joy. And in doing so, we would leave having been made more and more into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the thesis that Scripture gives us 
is that because Christ conquered death through death, that is, by his dying, he has taken death's power and so transformed it that it's now something that can willingly be welcomed and even embraced by his people. So that not just in our words, but also in our lives, in our bodies, the story of his death and resurrection can be made palpable and visible to the world around us. And so what I want to do today, I want to begin by uh, defining death. I think it's important to define death because the Bible uses that word in, in various ways. I want to look at the Christian experience with death in its various forms. And lastly, I want to look at what awaits us after our bodily death with the goal of only increasing our hope and expectation of what God has in store for those who love him. So, death in Scripture. There's two really types of death in the Bible. There's the first one, the normal one that we think of, which is simply the actual death of human beings, where we return to the dust from which we were created, as God promised. Simple enough. The second type of death, though, is a spiritual or a metaphorical death, as a powerful force opposing God and holding us in its bondage. I'm not a big Marvel comic series guy, but I do know of Thanos, who is maybe like the worst evil supervillain in, in history, but definitely he is the main supervillain in the Marvel series and the Avengers movies. He's the guy with the gold glowing right hand. Well, the backstory is that Thanos was originally a pacifist, but by adolescence he became obsessed with nihilism and death, falling in love with the physical embodiment of death, and he spends his days both dishing out and worshiping death. Well, I think Jim Starlin, who was the creator of that character, Thanos, either knew his Bible or he knew some Greek because he sounds eerily close to a character that we encounter in the Bible. The Greek word for death is, you ready for it? Thanatos. Sounds pretty similar to Thanos. I see some of the kids laughing and it's trigger, it's, it's a clicking. In, uh, in Romans 5, Paul is, is uh, contrasting this first Adam, and then he's with this second Adam, who's Christ, and he talks about that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. One commentator says this, he says, Thanatos, or death, is also personified as another actor who enters onto the stage of human history, playing the role of a tyrant and dominating human beings. Death is not merely physical, bodily death, but includes spiritual death. The definitive separation of human beings from God, who is the ultimate source of life. Death is thus a personified cosmic force, the last enemy to be vanquished. Ever since Adam, the human race has lain in servitude to sin and to death, these personified powers of destruction. And because of the very essence of sin derived from Adam, the power of death has entered into the world of humanity. And this personification of sin and death sounds almost exactly like what James talks about in, in chapter 1 of his letter. He says that each person is tempted when he is drawn away by his desire, and then desire, when it has fully conceived, gives birth to sin, 
And sin, when it grows up fully, brings forth death. I think that what we'll see is as we look at these two different ways that the Bible talks about death, we'll realize how connected they are and how they're intimately related and they build on one another and climax in really what is the best news of all. So we're going to look at three specific aspects of our personal encounter with death as Christians. We're going to look at the fact that we have died, believe it or not. We are to die daily, and we actually will die one day, and that's a good thing. So um, the, first, the first point that we'll talk about Uh, We're going to look in Romans chapter 6. So if you want to turn there, we're really just going to kind of listen to Paul argue uh, what he says takes place um, in a specific moment. And we're going to just try to track with his thoughts. And I think that what we'll see is uh, there's some quite astounding truths that come out of this passage. Um, Paul begins this chapter by asking a question. The question is based on a comment that he made which is that sin entered into the world, sin continues to increase as that sin and death spreads, but in the same way that sin increases, God's grace comes in and it abounds all the more. Sin increases, grace abounds even more. Paul begins or continues and he says, what shall we say then? This is verse one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, you may expect the answer to be something like, no, God has told us to not sin, or no, that's not what God's law says. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He continues, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins by saying, believe it or not, you have died. If you are in Christ, if you have been baptized, you have died. What does he mean by that? Well, there's a, there's a phrase that's become, I think, pretty popular in the last couple decades uh, that Christians will use, and they'll say, Christianity is not really a religion, it's, it's a relationship. And I think that, that, that quote is trying to emphasize the personal relationship of our nature with, or the, the personal nature of our relationship with God. And there's some truth to that because our relationship with God, um, it is personal, but it's a very specific type of relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. And the way that God enters into covenant with us 
is, is through a mediator or a representative. He doesn't just approach us on our own behalf. He approaches us and is in relationship with us through somebody. So think about your relationship as, as, a, as a citizen of the United States. You have a relationship with your president or with your government such that if they make a decision about our country, whether or not you agree with it, you're part of, the, you're part of that decision. It's going, it's going to affect you. If, if a king decides to go to war with another country, guess what? You're going to war. If the king signs a peace treaty, well, guess what? You're at peace with that country. And that's similar to how God relates to us. We are represented and as Shelton mentioned earlier, and I was thinking about this this week, uh, how many times I've heard the phrase, there's really only two types of people in the world. I didn't know he was going to say that, but I was thinking about how many times I've heard that, and I don't know that I've ever actually heard the same answer of how many different types of people there are. There's always a vast majority of types of people, but in the most important way, and in the most fundamental way, there really are only two types of people. There are those who are in a relationship with God in Adam, or those who are in a relationship with God in Christ. When God created Adam, he entered into a covenant with him. He made him uh, in his own image. He gave him power and rule and dominion. And he said, go into the world, be fruitful and multiply, name animals, create things, make the world beautiful. And he gives one stipulation. He says, do all that. I'm going to give you access to, to life. I'm going to give you access to all the trees. You just can't eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day that you do, if you do do it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And what does Adam do? He eats from the tree, and death enters in through that sin. That's the argument that Paul's making in Romans chapter 5. So Adam is in relationship with God, but he's in relationship as a covenant breaker. Now Christ comes in, the second man, that word Adam really is just the Hebrew word for man. So Paul is really saying there's this first man. Well, here's this second man who comes. He's under the covenant, except this man is perfectly obedient to every aspect of that covenant. Perfectly obedient his whole life. And yet where do we find him at the end of his life? We find him hanging on a cross as a cursed victim. Why is he dying? He's a perfect covenant keeper, and yet he's being punished like he was a covenant breaker. Well, that death that he's dying is our death. It's our sins that he's bearing on the tree as covenant breakers so that in him, we actually might be treated as covenant keepers. And so what Paul's saying is that in the moment of baptism, as you cross into those waters and you come out, you are your old story, that old person in Adam dies. In fact, Paul says he's crucified. Paul says himself, it's no longer I who live, I have been crucified with Christ. Because the shift that takes place as we enter into Christ's church is that our old stories no longer define us to God it's Christ's story that defines us. If you're in Adam, again, you are in relationship with God as a covenant breaker. Death still hangs over your head, and you are still a slave to Thanatos. But if you're in Christ, the covenant has been fulfilled on your behalf, and your death has been accomplished, and Thanatos 
is no longer your master. This is, this is the essence of the good news that we, that we preach, that has been preached since this happened, is that, that this death has taken place already. And it matters today. So, we have died. That's the first point. If you are in Christ, you have died. And not just any death, but the death that we should fear the most. The death that is the punishment for sin that comes directly from God's righteous hands. That's the death that's been accomplished. But go back to Romans uh, 6, verse 11, that last verse that we read. He says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, God tells us these things. You you, you can hear a passage like that and go, well, that's great. That's that's covenant theology, and, and that's just kind of, you know, how we kind of structure things in order to make sense of the Bible. But it's incredibly practical because listen to the next thing that Paul says. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The next verse. Therefore, therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to, to sin as members of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. God tells us these things about ourselves so that we see ourselves differently. We see ourselves in Christ. And when we're baptized again, that old self dies and this new self, which is being, being created after the image of Christ, becomes alive. And this is true because before anything else in the Christian life, God wants us to know who we are in Christ. And when we talk about obedience and when we talk, talk about living the life that God wants to us, and we do so without first recognizing the fundamental transformation that's taken place in us, we often go far off the tracks. God cares so much that we know, that you know, who you are in Christ. So we have died. The second point, because we have died, we are to die daily. We just read that in Romans 6, 12 through 14. And did you notice what he says? Since you've died, don't let sin reign in your mortal body anymore. In other words, you have been freed from sin and death. And again, these are not merely spiritual realities that we need to believe as part of the deal. They're meant to inform everything about us. Consider yourselves. How do you think about yourself? It's an incredibly important question. Identity is a, is, a, is a very popular topic right now. What forms your identity? Paul talks about uh, this, this, um, these two kind of men that are still in us. Uh, he talks about being led by the flesh, which always leads to sin and to death, going back into slavery willingly, as it were. Versus this life in the Spirit, where the Spirit leads us into the fullness of life in the Son. And the way that we use our bodies, I think Paul is saying right here, is that it will either be a retelling of the gospel, that we are no longer enslaved to sin and death, or we will act like those who don't know who 
or more importantly, whose we truly are. Every day we make decisions about how to use our bodies. And the way in which we use our bodies will tell the story of whose slave we are. How do you use your bodies throughout the day? Have you thought about that? How do you use your mind? What are the thoughts that, that tend to occupy your mind throughout the day? Are they, are they thoughts that come from God and from his word and, and from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are they thoughts that come into your mind through the news or through current events? How do you, we use our ears? Again, uh, the, the, the information that comes into our minds is going to shape us. It's going to shape how we think about ourselves and about the world. I think one of Jesus' uh, most important commands is in Luke 8.18 when he says, Be careful then how you hear. Whose words are we listening to? Do we listen to things that are uplifting or are we listening to words that bring death or they sometimes feel like that? How do we use our hands? What fills your hands throughout your day and throughout your week? Are they idle? Are they filled with things that bring you pleasure? Or are our hands used to create? Are they being used to build, to wash, to serve? How do we use our words? James seems to put the tongue up there at the top when he talks about being righteous. He says if someone can tame their tongue, they're perfect. Our words are incredibly powerful and important. How do we use our words throughout the day? Are they, are they repetitious of God's word? Are they used to build up and to edify? Or are they used to gossip? Are they used to bring bad news? Every day we're tempted to use our mem- the members of our bodies either for our own self, that's walking according to the flesh, or we use them for the sake of others. And that's what the Spirit motivates in us. And here's the reality. That if we die to those temptations, if we put those to death, then we will truly live. Those actions motivated by the flesh, every single one of those temptations to use our bodies for our own good, they always promise this will bring you joy. This is what you really want. But in the end, they end up destroying everything, mainly our relationships with God and with others. But when we put them to death, in our own mini-death, as it were, true life comes in. And that's always the formula because of Christ's cross. Life comes through death. And all of this is just another way of saying what Jesus told his disciples. Do you remember what he said? He says, if someone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. How come? Well, he says one reason is because a disciple is not above his master. But it's also, again, precisely the way that God has ordained for life to come into the world. Through the voluntary death of his son. And in his son, us, his people. Every tiny death that you encounter, every single one, is, is an opportunity of you bringing life into the world around you. 
Um, this is almost exactly what Paul says, I think, in, in 2 Corinthians 4. It's almost like his philosophy of ministry uh, when you listen to it. And then as you see the, how, how he writes about this elsewhere, this is how Paul thinks. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. He says, and we have this treasure, and he's talking about the light of Christ Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay, that's our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I love this. Listen to what he says. He says, for we who live... For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's the way it works. Because of Christ's cross. So we've mainly been focusing on the second aspect of death, this spiritual or metaphorical uh, way of thinking about death or, or a type of death. And so now we come to the question of our actual, eventual bodily death. And I think the best way that we can recalibrate our thinking about death is to simply recount the facts about our death. If we know we're going to die, we would be wise to consider it. But even more than that, we would be wise to consider it because what's promised to us is astonishingly good news. So what are, the, what are the truths about our death? What happens when we die and what happens after that? I want to just kind of go through some facts about what, God word, what God's word tells us. The first one is, is that you are going to die. We're, we're going to die. Everybody dies. It's the way of all men. And not only that, God knows exactly when and how you're going to die. In fact, we recited the Heidelberg Catechism um, that, uh, that not a hair can fall from our head without our Heavenly Father's intention and His will. And I do think that there is some sense of comfort. I don't know if you've thought about this or as you've thought about death, but um, in, in, this, um, in, the, in the solidarity of the experience of every person who's ever lived. Everyone who's ever lived has died. And I know some of you are probably thinking about Enoch and Elijah right now, and I don't know the answer to those questions. So they're two people who didn't die. They just went to heaven. And that seems like it would be pretty cool too. <laughs> but for the rest of us, everybody else has died. It's the one thing, if you think about it, that every single person has in common. Second, traditionally understood, death is the dissolution of the body and the soul, where the body returns to the ground and the soul goes to its resting place, popularly understood, or, or what we call the intermediate state. Since it will be what we inhabit when we die, but it is not the final goal. And in fact, it's not even really super clear what this intermediate state is like. There's been a lot of discussion about the nature of it. Um, some of the language that's used in Scripture talks about sleep, uh, which may be helpful in how we think about it. One thing we do know is that for Christians, we will in some way be present with the Lord, uh, absent our bodies. But it's not the final goal. 
the goal of all human history, and this is the third point, is the general resurrection of the dead at the end of time, when all souls will be united with their bodies. And it's at that point that Jesus says, some will go to the resurrection of life, and some will go to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this is where it gets really fun. So, at that point, we will then get new fleshly bodies, like these, like these, but glorified like Jesus's. And this is one of the most amazing promises in all of Scripture. It's found in 1 John 3, uh, the first couple verses, where John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. So we will get new, very cool, fleshly, glorified bodies that should excite us very much, especially having spent a lifetime in these bodies, which tend to break down uh, pretty quickly. (laughs) But it gets even cooler than that. Then with Christ, we will judge the world, believe it or not. Did you know that? All authority in heaven on earth has been given by the Father to the Son, and the Father has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. And we also are in the Son, as we mentioned. And as a good older brother, he shares really well, including judgment. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's, he's, he's uh, coming against these Christians because they're suing each other in, in, the, in courts of law because they have grievances. And so he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you competent enough to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? That's pretty cool. If you read about uh, angels in Scripture, even the fallen angels, they seem like pretty wild, huge creatures that are pretty scary and I don't know if this is cool to you kids. I thought it was pretty cool. One day we will judge angels with Christ. What's fascinating is that, and beautiful, is not only will we see judgment finally be executed and justice fully completed, but God will allow us to partake in that judgment. And again, what's fascinating is he uses this fact about our resurrection that's coming, this future event of our resurrection, as grounds for, judge we, for how we judge things right now. That, that future moment is grounds for why we shouldn't sue each other today in court. Do you see how that resurrection reality is already breaking in to our daily lives? Now, the next thing is that judgment is always presented in Scripture as a cleansing. And it's not just people, but he's actually going to, Christ is going to judge the entire cosmos, the whole earth. And Hebrews 12 gives us a pretty kind of cool picture about what that's going to look like. It gives this imagery of Christ taking heaven and earth and almost like, you know, a a pair of pants that you shake out to get all the stuff out. He's going to shake everything. He's going to shake it, and the only things that are going to remain are the things that can't be shaken, which, as he, calls, which he says later in the, in the passage, is the kingdom, is the only thing that can't be shaken. That means everything else is going to be shaken out of creation, and all that's going to be left is a pristine, beautiful creation that's been cleansed of all impurity, sin, 
death, and sorrow. And that's what we will inhabit with our bodies, our new bodies. It gets even better. Isaiah chapter 11 paints this picture of um, uh, the reality of us really having full dominion over the animal world. It talks about wolves lying down with lambs and little children leading wild animals like lions and leopards and babies playing with poisonous snakes, believe it or not. We, in our house, we talk a lot about how cool this is. Um, And so if you ask my boys what what they're most excited for about heaven, it's usually like riding on bears or T-Rexes or playing with bald eagles. And I think that that's the right way to think about it. I think there in that place, our primary vocation will be gardening, growing, and making food that has flavors that we couldn't even conceive of right now. I think we'll see colors we've never imagined. I think we'll hear sounds and pitches and tunes that wouldn't even register in non-resurrected eardrums. But the best part of this world will be that we will see Christ as he is. The full radiance of the glory of God will be before our faces and there will be nothing to keep us from experiencing the maximum amount of love and joy moment by moment in a perfectly embodied existence. You think you don't want to die right now? Just wait till then. And the beautiful news is it will be the reality. We will not fear death anymore. We just read death no longer has dominion. Christ can't die again and we're in him. Well, in closing, I wanted to mention a thought that I had this week for the first time. You know, I've always considered, and you've probably been the same way, Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm about the the beauty of creation and beholding the beauty of creation. I noticed this week, though, that it's also a psalm of recreation. Verse 29, talking about all the creatures God has made, especially humans, says this. It says, when you, O God, hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. But when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. It struck me this week that as no one, none of us saw God create us, we weren't there to behold our creation. But when he recreates us in our new resurrection bodies, we're going to behold that act of his. We will somehow behold him taking our dead, dusty bodies and glorifying them in his son. He takes away our final breath, and in some sense, it becomes his encore performance. Notice the order. He takes away the breath first so that we die in order that he can send his spirit to renew us and make us fully and finally new. What a glorious truth that is, that he has saved some of his work seemingly for that last day to be put on display for all to see. And so brothers and sisters, let us hope in that day. Let us prepare for that day. Let us anticipate that day in the lives we live now. For we know that he is faithful to bring all of his mighty works to completion in Christ Jesus. Amen.